Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. We had over the course of two weeks, this was at the beginning of April, four children under the age of five presenting with jaundice. So they went yellow is what their parents noticed and came into hospital and were found to have very high levels of liver inflammation indicated on their blood tests. Dr. Rachel Taylor is a pediatric gastroenterologist at the Royal Hospital for Children in the city of Glasgow in Scotland. So normally we would maybe see two children in the west of Scotland present like this over a year period. So to suddenly get four in two weeks was very unusual. And also the other thing that was very unusual was the level of inflammation demonstrated in their blood so it's very high and also that they were all the same age so I at that point contacted my colleagues in Edinburgh and in Aberdeen and they had identified two similar cases in Edinburgh and another one in Aberdeen so that was when we thought there's something very strange or unusual going on and that we wanted to look into it further. Inflammation of the liver is known as hepatitis and is most commonly caused by viruses. But strangely, in these instances, it wasn't. And Scotland wasn't the only place to see a rise in cases. The mysterious outbreak of severe hepatitis in children could be to blame for a death in Wisconsin. Doctors across the U.S. are scrambling to figure out why more and more children are getting hepatitis. The CDC now says at least 180 children are suffering from that severe liver inflammation, and they don't know why. Au Canada, la santé publique enquête sur plusieurs cas d'hépatite aiguë d'origine inconnue chez des jeunes, mais sans donner plus de précision. The investigations are ongoing in all the countries reporting cases, but at present, the exact cause of this hepatitis still remains unknown. Since April, the World Health Organization has reported more than 1,000 probable cases in 35 countries. Some children have required liver transplants, and more than 20 children have died. Researchers have been scrambling to understand why, and two recent studies may have found the answer. Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Kenneth Kukier, The Economist's Deputy Executive Editor. On today's show, we'll unravel the medical mystery of the recent outbreaks of child hepatitis, examining the possible causes from germs to genetics. The leading hypothesis has profound implications for the future of healthcare. 
To understand this puzzle, we have to start with hepatitis itself and why the outbreak this year was so unusual. Rachel Taylor, the pediatrician you heard from earlier, was one of the first to encounter the surge in cases. Hepatitis just means inflammation in the liver and can be from a number of different causes. Our job as pediatric gastroenterologists is to look to see what the causes are. And in these cases, it was what we term non-A-to-E hepatitis, which essentially means that these children have presented as if it's like a viral infection very acutely, but we haven't identified one of the hepatitis viruses causing it, but also we haven't identified any other cause for the acute hepatitis. So other causes would be an autoimmune disorder or a metabolic disorder. So we do a a full workup in terms of looking at other causes and we didn't identify anything else. And we've had these cases before where we don't identify a cause, um, but to have them all coming in all together in one go was the thing that was unusual. When all of these patients are presenting, it must have been really difficult for you and the families and the patients with these strange symptoms and all of this uncertainty? Yeah, no, it's very difficult. So most people don't understand what the liver is, what the liver does, and the importance of the liver. I think lots of families thought hepatitis was just something that people who had hepatitis viruses such as B and C and alcoholics got. So explaining that hepatitis just means inflammation in the liver was really important and really important to get across to both them and in in the media. The other thing that was very difficult is we had no way of predicting when a child presented with jaundice and with hepatitis who would get better and who would get worse and who would need to go on to have a liver transplant, which is obviously a huge um, ordeal for a family to undertake. And also, at the beginning, we couldn't explain, or I think we still can't fully explain why it was suddenly happening. So that was very difficult for families to get their head around. Down the road from Dr. Taylor, at the University of Glasgow, is Dr. Antonia Ho. She's a senior lecturer and a physician in infectious diseases. She began to investigate what might have caused the illness. When you start out with a mystery, you kind of cast the net wide. You know, you don't commit to one thing. First of all, you screen for all the usual causes, make sure that they're negative for those. And then you kind of look systematically through, you know, infection. Could it be bacteria? Bacterial hepatitis is not common. Viruses are, and lots of viruses affect children, but you test for the less common viruses. And then you test for drug exposure, toxin exposure, um, autoimmune causes. This is when the body's immune system goes a bit wrong and attacks your own liver, thinking that it's foreign. So we kind of go through all these systematically. And then we also do questionnaires to look at other kind of environmental exposures. You know, have they been anywhere exciting? You know, any travel abroad? Have they started eating any food? You know, to identify kind of common exposures amongst all these kids, but nothing kind of turned up through initial investigations. Did you think it could have been related to COVID-19? Of course. I mean, COVID-19 dominated 
so much of our lives over the last two and a half years. And that definitely is in our differential as a cause, but only a small proportion of the children tested positive for COVID-19 during their admission with this hepatitis, which made us think it was less likely. It could, of course, be perhaps previous exposure to COVID-19 that may have altered a person's immune response to a different bug. And that we certainly haven't 100% ruled out, but we think that's less likely. Now, dare I ask the question, did he think perhaps it could have been related to the vaccinations that the children may have had for COVID-19? No, I can quite definitively say that's no, because none of the children, um, certainly none of the cases in Scotland have received the COVID-19 vaccine. The majority of children are under the age of five, and we don't in the UK vaccinate children under five during that period anyway. So we can say quite definitively that this is not related in any way to the COVID-19 vaccine. At the same time, as part of a separate research group, Dr. Julianne Brown was trying to uncover the reason for the hepatitis outbreaks at the microbiology and virology labs at the Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital for research led by University College London. Our initial suspicion was that we would find an unexpected virus causing infection. So normally to diagnose viruses, we think of the virus that might be causing infection and we test for it with a really specific test called PCR that just looks for that particular virus and then you get a yes or a no answer and if the answer is no then you think of the next virus and you test for that and so on and so forth and so in these patients all the kind of the usual offenders if you like were tested for and were all negative so our first kind of guess was that there was a either a new or an unexpected virus that was causing disease which we weren't picking up with our kind of routine testing. So what do you do then? How do you test for that? So we've used a kind of a relatively new test, which not very many clinical labs in the world really use, called metagenomics, where if you think of viruses and bacteria, they've got genomes just like people do. And so what we can do is we can sequence all of the genetic material in a patient sample, which will sequence all of the human sequences and DNA, but also anything else that's in there. So we sequence everything and then we basically chuck out all the human sequences and see what's left, which means that we will be able to find something that we weren't expecting to find or that is new. And what did the test find? So not what we thought we would find. (laughs) What we found is two very common viruses that we wouldn't normally suspect to cause this disease. So we found adenovirus and adenovirus is a virus that causes lots of different clinical syndromes, but some types cause respiratory infections and other ones, which is called adenovirus F41, is normally associated with diarrhea and vomiting. And then really unexpectedly, we found a second virus called AAV2, which is called adeno-associated virus. And this is a virus that only ever occurs in the presence of some other viruses, including adenovirus. And it's always been thought to be completely innocuous, so doesn't cause any disease, doesn't affect patients. It's just sort of there asymptomatically um, without any issues. So we didn't find a new virus. We found existing viruses that we already knew about, but wouldn't have suspected in cases of hepatitis. 
Was it a relief that you didn't find a new virus or does that make it more complicated? Um, it's actually, it was actually slightly disappointing, <laughs> although a, a relief in that we weren't going to have a new pandemic, but um, it just complicates the picture. It's just not so straightforward. So if you found a new virus or a virus that has previously been associated with hepatitis, but is quite rare, then that would be quite an easy answer. You know, you've found something and it all makes sense. And, you know, that's sort of the end of the story. Whereas our findings sort of presented a slightly murkier picture, if you like. So our next suspicion was when we saw the adenovirus and AAV2, perhaps there were new strains that had emerged, but actually we sequenced the full genomes of these viruses from these patients and compared them to sequences from viruses from patients from you know previous years, other places, and basically found these strains that we've detected in these hepatitis cases aren't unique. They're just normal circulating virus it, there's nothing unusual about it, nothing, nothing special. So yes, a slightly complicated picture. Back in Glasgow, Dr. Ho's research group found that almost all of the children they studied had been infected with this particular adenovirus. And all of them tested positive for AAV2, the adeno-associated virus. But the researchers also identified another complicating factor. I want to emphasize, you know, this is a small study, but we found a third thing. So first of all, to say that 70 to 80 percent of all of us have had exposure to AV2, but it doesn't tend to do anything. Most kids are exposed usually between the ages of three and five, and by 10, most kids are exposed to it. And it's not known to cause human disease previously. We also found a third piece of information in our investigation. So apart from identifying these two viruses, we also identified a genetic factor that a gene called DRB10401 gene, which was present in eight out of the nine cases. But in the Scottish population, it's normally found in about 15% of the population. So we would say that this gene seems to be found more commonly in these cases compared to the community. And it's a gene that is also more common in kind of Northern Europeans. About 10% of the US populations in US studies have this gene. But it might explain why higher number of cases have been identified in the UK. Um, so it may be this is like what we call a multi-hit phenomenon, where you need co-infection with these two viruses in kids that have these genes. This is our hypothesis. So from then on, this is all the information that we're able to gather, and we need to take this forward. Okay, so it seems like we have this unique combination between AAV2 and adenovirus and the genes that might have caused this disease. That could have happened any time, and it just happened to happen now, and things like that happen. You get a cluster. But that doesn't account for all the cases that you've investigated. No. So basically, when we have a finding like that, we need to find out if what we find happens in real life. So that's why you need kind of control subjects. So we included 58 children that were recruited into a separate study who would have been exposed to COVID-19. And we included three particular control groups. So first group is healthy kids 
who gave blood. So this is blood from these subjects. And then the second group are kids of a similar age range that have had adenovirus infection, but no hepatitis. And this is to find out, do we normally see AAV2 in kids who have adenovirus? And then the third group are kids who have hepatitis for other causes, but don't have adenovirus infection. So in all three groups, all 58 controlled children, we found no evidence of AAV2 whatsoever. So perhaps the AAV2 is important. And all we can say at this stage is that there is a strong association. So yes, we found a, a suspect, but we can't say they actually did the crime. And we need to do further tests to really understand the role of AAV2. Are they the causative agent? Are they actually causing the liver inflammation? Or do they just represent a biomarker of adenovirus infection? That is what we need to find out now. It does seem mysterious that this large outbreak happened as we started loosening restrictions from the pandemic, though. Yes, that's that's true. Um, so in our paper, first of all, we plotted what we called an epidemic curve. So this is the way the number of cases of hepatitis present over time. And then we also mapped... SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19 cases, and also adenovirus cases over the last couple of years. And basically, the case numbers of COVID obviously have been steadily increasing over the last two years or so, whereas the adenovirus cases, and this is mostly adenovirus in stool, we looked back to 2019. So in 2019, it normal kind of trickles along And then during the pandemic, of course, with lockdown, with all the measures we put in place to prevent SARS-CoV-2 from spreading, the amount of adenovirus that was detected really dropped quite a lot. And then we saw a huge spike of adenovirus in 2022. And the curve of that spike really mirrors the curve that we see in the hepatitis, but precedes the hepatitis cases by two weeks. The other thing that is interesting is most of the kids, so eight out of the nine cases, presented with some sort of gastroenteritis a good number of weeks. So it ranges from between one to 11 weeks before they present to hospital with the hepatitis. So their illness is often started quite some time before they come in with the hepatitis. And they usually started off with diarrhea, vomiting, abdominal pain, symptoms that we associated with adenovirus 41 infection. And then they come in sometime later on and develop this hepatitis, which often manifests clinically as jaundice, you know, when they have yellowing of the skin and the eyes. This pattern of symptoms gives weight to the theory that children were initially infected by a particular type of adenovirus that causes gastroenteritis. But what exactly could be the relationship between the COVID pandemic and the resulting hepatitis? In London, Dr. Julianne Brown weighed up the arguments. One of the hypotheses is that children perhaps, well, we know, weren't mixing with other children as they usually would. So basically for two years, many children didn't get very many colds and they didn't get very many diarrhea and vomiting bugs because they just simply weren't mixing and therefore they weren't being exposed as they 
they normally would. So, you know, these viruses never went away. They're still there sort of bumbling around um, in the background. So it's possible as everyone started mixing again that you suddenly have a quite large population of susceptible children who haven't had these infections before because they've just been at home. And so suddenly there's a huge surge in basically everybody getting them at once. What is it about young children's biological makeup, their immunology, that makes them more susceptible to post-lockdown viruses? If a child was born at the beginning of, of the pandemic, they've basically delayed their first exposures to infections until a couple of years later. And this is just a hypothesis. You know, we don't have the data, we need more data, but it could be that by delaying that exposure, perhaps it triggers a slightly different immune response than it would have occurred if they were infected earlier in childhood. It's sort of this perfect storm of lots of different variables all coming together. The lack of exposure to a diversity of microbes during the COVID-19 lockdowns seems like a plausible explanation for an unexpected response to these viruses in young children. But much larger international studies are needed, and there's a lot left to explore to fully understand the recent child hepatitis cases. The evidence at the moment is circumstantial in a way. It's not proving causality. So quite a lot of further work is needed to kind of really nail down exactly what's happened. So... Most of these patients had adenovirus. We were finding it in the blood, which feels really unusual. But the thing is, we never normally look for this particular adenovirus in the blood because it just isn't relevant when someone has diarrhea and vomiting. You would look in their poo, not in their blood. So one of the questions there, for example, is, is it normal to detect this adenovirus in the blood? Perhaps it's always there, but we don't know because we've never looked for it. And the same goes for the AAV2. And it might also be possible that if a child is infected with both adenovirus and AAV2 at the same time, maybe it has always caused hepatitis, but maybe in the past it's been a very rare event, so nobody's noticed. Um, whereas since a sort of relaxing of sort of lockdown measures, there's been a huge surge in lots of different viruses. So it might be that we've only just uncovered this association now because there's just so many cases all happening at the same time. More research may yet help scientists gain a fuller understanding of the mysterious outbreaks of hepatitis, which thankfully remains an uncommon illness. But the hypothesis we've explored raises a troubling question. How else could lockdowns and social distancing have upset the normal interplay between viruses and our immune systems? Will there be other consequences for our health that we don't know about yet? That's coming up next. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So far on today's show, we've explored how the resurgence of viruses could have caused the curious cases of hepatitis in children that are cropping up all over the world. 
But it turns out many more pathogens are returning with a vengeance following two years of COVID restrictions. During the course of the pandemic, most viruses were at a very much lower rate than we had seen in the years before. And so they really drifted into the background. Professor Sir Andrew Pollard is a pediatrician specializing in infectious diseases and the director of the Oxford Vaccine Group. So influenza disappeared completely. Uh, Another really important childhood virus, RSV, which causes between 20 and 30,000 hospitalizations in the UK every year, disappeared completely during 2020. So are they back now? Well, that's a a really interesting um, question. So RSV, having disappeared in 2020, actually appeared an, an unseasonal early wave of disease in 2021, starting before the summer. Usually it just comes in the winter, um, but it started before the summer and really carried on right through the summer into the early part of the autumn to the point where it usually appears it started to disappear. So it was a very long season last year and not as high, uh, but the total number of cases was similar or greater than a normal year. And to our surprise, the same phenomenon has happened in 2022 where RSV arrived early and has continued. However, for flu, we've had two years off so far with no influenza in the UK at all, but we are bracing ourselves for this winter with society essentially fully opened up to expect a very significant influenza season. And and indeed, that is what the Southern Hemisphere has seen. Why wouldn't the amount of viruses and therefore illnesses simply return to its norm, why would it actually surge and spike and be greater than what you'd normally expect? Well, the reason for for the differences in viruses depends a little bit on their normal ability to cause infections and who they target. So for RSV, it's really largely an infection of very young children, so the under twos. And Because it comes every year, most children who are around uh, will get infected in the first uh, year to 18 months of their life. So that group becomes immune, no longer can get significant illness that brings them into hospital when the virus appears the following year. And because we had a year off, that group of susceptible young children got much bigger than usual, uh, which meant that there was a lot more chance for transmission. And so we had a lot more cases last year. And, and we've also had a much longer season this year, uh, just because of more susceptibles. For influenza, it's a more complicated picture because the particular groups affected by influenza are older adults in terms of hospitalizations. And older adults already have some immunity to flu from past years. So the complete absence of it for two years is concerning because there may be a bigger flu season, but it may be a slightly different pattern from the one that we've had with RSV just because of who who is attacked most by the virus. Now, we've been talking about viruses, but of course there's also bacteria. Well, it it is uh, absolutely fascinating. The lockdowns and the reduction in social interactions between children have also resulted in a dramatic fall in bacterial infections. That's pneumonia and meningitis, for example. And that's because children develop those infections soon after acquiring bacteria, and they acquire bacteria from other people, both other children and adults. And so 
with that being reduction during the pandemic, after the pandemic, we have actually seen a rise. And that's because children started meeting each other more again. And so we've seen an increase in these cases of meningitis, pneumonia, and other bacterial infections that had really reduced um, during the pandemic. Now, those spikes that have happened as a result of people coming back together, hopefully will now melt away into the normal background that we see um, during normal years. How important is it that kids experience a diversity of bugs when they're growing up? Infections are sort of a, a natural part of the world. So exposure to bacteria and viruses during early childhood really sets us up for life by building immunity against these different organisms. That means that we can enjoy a relatively healthy lifestyle despite being repeatedly exposed to them through all the decades that we live. However, for young children, occasionally these infections will be very severe. And in fact, the highest mortality from infections is still in the first five years of life. And so you've got this balance between the exposures in early childhood and the potential for some children to do very badly as a result of them. Exposure to a diverse range of pathogens is extremely important in early childhood, but a similar phenomenon continues throughout adult life too. Humans' ability to continue to uh, be protected against viruses including the regular seasonal viruses, rhinoviruses and adenoviruses and RSV and flu, is predicated on our continued training against these viruses, our continued immunological training. You could think of it like exercise. If you go too long without exercise, then you're no longer going to be able to run the mile as fast as you had hoped. Dr. Michael Minna is the chief science officer at EMED, a digital health company, after doing epidemiology and immunology research at Harvard. And it's the same thing here. If you go too long without seeing different viruses and getting sort of what you could think of as natural boosters or natural exercise as you come across these day-to-day viruses, if you go too long without that exercise, your body stops being able to protect you against it. You could sort of think of it as a sand timer. If you flip the timer over, you have a certain amount of time to get exposed again to kind of re-up your immunity against that pathogen. And if you get below a certain level, all of a sudden, you no longer have the right amount of protection so that when you do get exposed, you actually get infected symptomatically versus just getting exposed and having it be beneficial to your overall future immune protection against that same pathogen. So we're kind of out of shape at the moment because we've just allowed too much time to go where we didn't all see these normal seasonal viruses. Okay, so this is like a massive natural experiment in natural immunology. What is happening and what are we learning? This is exactly a a massive natural experiment. And for listeners out there, I don't want people to be alarmed that this is some intentional experiment. This is a natural experiment that is teaching us so many new things about what drives lifelong protection against various pathogens, for example. Uh, We've never been able to easily answer the question, for example, 
Why does somebody, once they hit four or five years of age, why are they no longer really at risk of getting sick from those same viruses that normally infect and, and harm two-year-olds? And it's always been hypothesized that probably at least some of it is, well, once you hit four or five years old, you've seen that virus enough times that you've built up these layers of protection. But then that question comes about, are those layers of protection solidified for life? Or do we have to maintain these layers of protection by getting very light touches with these viruses over time. There's a very good example of this, which was another natural experiment, but when chickenpox vaccines started to be introduced about 20 or so years ago into the population, let's say in the United States, but globally as well, uh, what we have seen recently is now people in their 30s and 40s are getting shingles. Now, shingles is the chickenpox rearing its head and coming out of your nerves where it's kind of lived dormant for decades. Normally, people wouldn't get shingles until they were 60, 70, 80 years old. And that was because their immune system was more generally deteriorating. But now, interestingly, we see shingles in 30 and 40-year-olds, which has driven the question, well, what is going on? Why are we starting to see shingles in 30 and 40-year-olds? Well, it's because normally parents, when they're in their 20s and 30s and they have kids, their kids would get chicken pox. And that would drive sort of immune training of their parents. So then their parents would have another 30 years of immune protection before they would get shingles at 60 or 70. Without chicken pox in our communities, we're realizing that that sand dial is running low, that people's immune system is just draining. And that gives the chicken pox virus an opportunity to break through our immune defenses because we got so weak against it that it can come out. And so that was just one example that's been very famous and it's hotly debated and is driving some of the decision about whether the UK, for example, should vaccinate the kids against chickenpox. The US has decided to, even if it means that we have a generation of adults who are getting shingles early. So we will certainly learn a lot about immunology over the coming years, but let me ask you to speculate a little bit. Is it possible that out-of-season outbreaks, like what we're seeing with RSV at the moment, could cause children to grow up with other health problems? Yes, it's interesting because we know that if you get RSV too early, it can actually be a, a predecessor to asthma. It can, it can promote asthma forming in, in some individuals. So we know that some of these interesting links exist. We're still trying to better understand them. Things like Epstein-Barr virus has major consequences in a minority of people to create things like multiple sclerosis and other issues, even some cancers. And so I think that we should anticipate that lockdowns due to COVID will alter the behavior of epidemics and outbreaks in our community from other viruses. And that will undoubtedly have effects that are, are very hard to anticipate but one thing we should anticipate is uh, anticipate seeing those effects as they play out over the coming years. Do you think that these viruses will settle back down again into a seasonal pattern? And if so, when? I think that this could take about two years, is my expectation anyway, for things to settle back. And the reason I say two years is I think it will probably take around two different seasonal cycles to regain population immunity where it was lost across different age groups. I think we should expect to see some really odd behavior over a couple of seasons, and then things will probably settle back into uh, to being driven more by environment and temperature and humidity 
and some of these features that normally drive uh, seasonal outbreaks. But there are consequences that we don't understand. For example, we know that for many routine viruses, it's better to get them earlier in life than later. And is it possible that by pushing off some of these viruses to later childhood for certain individuals, could that actually cause them to have more severe consequences from those viruses that normally would have been rather not severe? Some of my research before the pandemic was focused on measles. And measles was famous because it infected every kid more or less before their fifth birthday and almost assuredly before their 10th birthday. But years later, decades later, myself and a team at Princeton and then later myself and a team at Harvard, we discovered that actually getting measles as a child wipes out much of the immunological memory that you have developed before getting measles. And it set kids up for increased risk of hospitalization and death for years after their measles infection. But it took decades before we ended up linking those excess amounts of mortality and hospitalization back to measles infections. Now, obviously, restrictions were necessary to slow the spread of COVID-19. But are we learning anything about how lockdowns could have been better implemented to avoid this long tail of other infections? I truly, truly hope that this pandemic drives a new approach to thinking about things like lockdowns that does include thinking about the larger environment and ecosystem in which we live and whether that be uh, mental health or that be other infectious diseases. In this case, we could have taken much more targeted approaches to prevent lockdowns from happening, but enable outbreak suppression of coronavirus. We could have utilized testing much more rigorously than we did in the early stages of the pandemic. And that was something I pushed very heavily for and suggested we don't need to lock down if we know who at any given time is infectious. In fact, we could keep schools going. We could keep all of the other pieces of our ecosystem operating per usual, including the spread of things like adenoviruses and RSV and rhinoviruses to maintain population immunity against these pathogens, while simultaneously using more targeted approaches to limit the spread of SARS-CoV-2. It also poses the question whether there should be a public health intervention to get kids to be more exposed to these sorts of viruses earlier you could imagine chicken pox parties, for example. Yeah, so this is, that, that would be a very highly contentious suggestion. Obviously, those suggestions have been made in the past. If there was evidence to suggest that earlier infection rather than later infection was beneficial, then that argument would start to push in that direction. But I think that to actually break into that domain, if you will, I think would be exceedingly difficult and fraught with a lot of ethical questions. Uh, So I don't think it will happen, but I do think it's certainly worth understanding better. We know, for example, that if you are going to get rubella, you'd rather get it as a child than as a pregnant mother. So if you're almost guaranteed that you will get this virus at a later point in life, and we know that that process will be more damaging to you, maybe there would be an argument to be made there. But I think instead what would happen is people would say, well, wait for vaccines. You know, if that's really the issue, then we want to vaccinate this child. Maybe we should run adenovirus vaccine campaigns, for example. I put this point to Andrew Pollard, the director of the Oxford Vaccine Group. 
Well, the key thing is where there are vaccines available that children who have access to those should be vaccinated. And of the viruses that we vaccinate against at the moment, the most important being influenza. And in countries where influenza vaccine is offered to children, that certainly will mitigate any chance of them having a significant illness with flu. But actually for most of the other viruses that are out there, we don't have vaccines that are likely to transmit during the winter seasons. And so to some extent, we just have to get on and manage those cases when they happen. The worst thing to do would be to make societies completely avoid these viruses because the negative impact on education and psychology for children of avoiding contact with each other and with the rest of the population is much greater than any risk from these viruses. Have you been thinking about developing vaccines to protect young children against the surge of viruses that they're going to be getting all at once now that they've left lockdown? Well, we, we don't have um, a, a wide array of, of vaccines to cover every virus that could affect children, but there is a lot of work that's been going on both before the pandemic and currently to try and deal with some of these viruses. So flu, we already have vaccines for, for that virus. RSV, there are vaccines of monoclonal antibodies going through the final trials before licensure, which really offer the potential to stop those 20 or 30,000 babies being admitted to hospital every year with RSV. We need to make sure that we have vaccines to prevent these very serious bacterial infections as well, to be able to stop these um, awful consequences that occur normally, let alone in the context of a post-pandemic resurgence. And I think these advances that are moving ahead really in the future years are going to make the winter seasons much less pressurised for hospitals as we find better ways of controlling against these respiratory viruses, which like COVID and flu, uh, really make the winter a very difficult time for health systems. That does sound like a promising future. A combination of vaccines and drugs to protect children from the biggest risks without forgetting about the importance of kids' natural exposure to bugs when they're growing up. But there's still lots to do, both on the technological side, designing vaccines and therapeutics, and on the research side, to better understand how pathogens and immune systems interact with one another. As people experience the full impact of this accidental natural experiment, the coming years will be very telling. Our thanks to Rachel Taylor, Antonia Ho, Julianne Brown, Andrew Pollard, and Michael Minna. And thank you for listening to Babbage. You can read about the latest research on the cause of child hepatitis in the recent issue of The Economist. But to be sure you never miss out on an important topic, we encourage you to subscribe. Listeners can get a special introductory rate at economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. And don't forget to tell them, Ken Sencha. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin, with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist.
Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.